It's time to get real with Robin. Join veteran broadcaster Robin Cote and her co-hosts, known as The Collective, as they delve into subject matters that most are afraid to talk about, but need to hear. And now, get ready to get real. On the night of September 10th, 2001, 246 people went to sleep in preparation for their morning flights. 2,606 people went to sleep in preparation for work in the morning. 343 firefighters went to sleep in preparation for their morning shift. 60 police officers went to sleep in preparation for their morning patrol. Eight paramedics went to sleep in preparation for their morning shift of saving lives. None of them saw past 10.28 a.m. on Tuesday, September 11th, 2001. We all know the timeline, but in case you forgot, let me remind you. At 8.46 a.m., Flight 11 crashed into floors 93 to 99 of the North Tower of the World Trade Center. 9.03 a.m., Flight 175 crashed into floors 75 through 85 of the South Tower. 9.37 a.m., Flight 77 crashed into the Pentagon. And at 10.07 a.m., Flight 93 passengers bravely fought back, but they all perished in Shanksville, Pennsylvania. We may never know how many lives those brave souls saved that day by fighting back, but their words of victory will forever be immortalized with Let's Roll. Close to 20,000 people were in the Twin Towers that morning. So many were able to escape before the towers fell. So many were trapped and didn't have a chance. So many made the gut-wrenching choices to jump, choosing how they were going to die. Only 20 people were rescued from the rubble after the towers collapsed. It took 1.5 million man-hours to clear the site of Ground Zero. 1.8 million tons of debris hauled off in more than 107,000 truckloads. Over 20,000 body parts were found. 40% of the victims who died in the towers, they were never recovered. Over 3,000 children lost a parent that day. The youngest victim of 9-11 was two-year-old Christine Lee Hansen, who was a passenger along with her parents on Flight 175. You know, we can never truly grasp the magnitude of 9-11, the painful heartbreak of having loved ones be lost, families who were torn apart, the loss of thousands of lives that day and the continued loss of thousands of lives due to the health issues of those who were exposed to things down at ground zero. The trauma that so many live with and struggle to heal from. Witnessing the murder of so many innocent people. So many things we human beings were not prepared to ever see, hear, smell, or feel. The cries of dead men all over the scene until their batteries went dead. 
The pain of that day is still felt by so many. A young woman who lost her first responder dad said it best. I was 14 when he died, and he died doing what he loved, saving and helping others. It's difficult every year because I have to relive losing my dad. I see him being murdered every time they have those shows in remembrance on television. I see it in the newspapers with the pictures of the towers. I am proud of him for what he did, and I am glad that I had him in my life. But it still hurts every year to watch him die all over again. On this anniversary of 9-11, I am truly honored to have with me in studio two people who were there. One escaped the North Tower. The other one spent so many days working at the pile at Ground Zero. So with me today, I have my dear friend and Marine, Bob Jenkins. He is our North Tower survivor. And Stacy Goodman, Long Island police officer who spent 23 days working the pile down at Ground Zero. So thank you both for being here today. Thank you, Robin. Hello, Robin. Thank you. Uh, and first of all, I have to tell you both, thank you for your service to this country. I know a lot of times our uh, first responders in our military don't hear that enough. And having friends that have done both for a living, they don't like to hear it sometimes. But I'm sitting here today, and I'm just going to tell you thank you, because both of you have been on the front lines yeah. and have seen things that many of us will never see, ever. Nor should you. Shouldn't and, have to. No. And Bob, I know you did some time in the military, and I just want to jump to this question real quick because I, we've talked about your story, and we're going to hear your story again about surviving the, the collapse of the tower and getting out. But you served during wartime, am I correct? I was Vietnam era. I joined the Marine Corps in 74, I left for boot camp in 75, and we were just clearing out of Vietnam, so I did not serve in Vietnam. But you saw some things during that time that a lot of us wouldn't have seen. I know you witnessed somebody dying in, in the line of duty there. Correct. And when you got out of the tower, I can only imagine what you saw around you was nothing like what you had seen during your time in the military. No. No. It was... We were all in shock. Uh, you know, it's just... It's, it's, uh, it's the day before... Um, I was in New York with uh, David Moss, my VP of sales. I was selling video conferencing equipment at the time and um, for a company that was based out of Austin, Texas. And um, David Moss was my VP of sales. Chris Platt was my sales engineer. And Arthur Cass was a consultant that we had hired. And we were presenting to Lehman Brothers. Lehman Brothers had a very specific uh, criteria for what they wanted for desktop video. And uh, we had it. Uh, and more. And so the day before, uh, we went down, we were at the New York Stock Exchange, um, we were presenting to them, and it was just a brutal, hot, humid day. Yeah, I mean, it's disgusting. New York on a hot, humid day is, is gross. Um, and it and, was beautiful blue skies from what everybody says. Well, the next day. So what yeah. happened was that afternoon, we cleared up. David went back to New Jersey. Um, his wife and family were living there. Arthur went back. He was in New York, so Arthur went home. And Chris and I took a cab uptown. We stayed at the Marriott Marquis that night. 
And uh, we went out, we had dinner, we had sushi and a couple of beers, got up the next morning, and the next morning was just crystal clear. It was one of those days that you just, you're glad to be alive because it was clear, blue, and dry. And um, we jumped in a cab and we went down the FDR drive, uh, got down the financial district, got out of the cab, took our overnight bags with us, <clears throat> and uh, walked into uh, WTC1. And we were having a cup of coffee, and we were waiting for the other guys to show up. And uh, it was interesting. I grew up in and around New York. My dad worked in Manhattan his entire career. I mean, it's Manhattan. I lived in Manhattan when I got out of the Marine Corps. Um, it's, I'm not a stranger to New York. And yet still, when, when Chris and I were standing at the base of the building by the elevator banks, you would see these long lines of people, and it was like time-lapse photography. You'd see these lines of people, and then in the, in the elevator, and then lines, and then in the elevator. At one point, I looked over at Chris, and I said, where the hell are they all going? Like, how big is this building? And you said a moment ago there were 20,000 people. There could the- have been over 50 if they had hit the building at a later time. There Absolutely. could have been well over 50,000 in there. Absolutely. So we, we David and, and Arthur showed up. And we had to go to a desk, and uh, the irony is we had to go through security. And uh, I have a little white um, ID card, you know, with my picture, Lehman Brothers, WTC1, 911, 40th floor. And we went up to the 40th floor, <clears throat> and we met the folks from Lehman. And um, what time were you there at the North Tower? We got there at eight. Uh, we, David, uh, Chris, and I were there at about eight fifteen. 8.30, uh, David and Arthur showed up, and then we took the elevators up. Maybe a little bit earlier, actually. It was about 8.15, yeah, about 8.30 we went up. So um, you're talking about not even 45 minutes before the actual plane no, hit the building. Oh no. no, we got upstairs wow. to the 40th. We met the folks from Lehman, and they said, we've reserved a conference room uh, down on the 39th floor, so we're going to walk down a flight of stairs. Um, foreboding little did i know i was going to spend a whole lot of time in those stairs you know later that day so we walked from 40 to 39 uh went in got in the conference room and uh you know you do what you do in any business meeting you know how was your summer how the kids how's this you get all the pleasantries out of the way and then i said okay the purpose of the meeting we're here to discuss and the words discuss got about eight inches out of my mouth when as the entire world knows, there was this enormous explosion. And everything stopped. Time literally stopped cold. And I looked at the eyes and the expressions of everybody around me. Um, I was a combat engineer in the Marine Corps, and I did a lot with mines, demolitions, and, uh, and high explosives. Uh, I played with that stuff out in 29 Palms out in the desert a lot. So I know what it looks like. I know what it smells like. I know what it feels like. And I felt the, I heard the explosion, and then I felt the percussion come down through the entire building. So the building was shaking at that point. Well, actually, it was si- the building was silent for a, just a moment. Everything stopped, and then the building started to really convulse. And so if you think of about a 100-story building starts swaying, they're designed to sway, uh, the engineers and architects of the building, they're designed to sway. Otherwise, you know, they, they don't break. They don't fall apart. This was now swaying feet. I mean, many, many feet back and forth. And people in the room started saying, uh, 
earthquake, you know, an explosion. And um, I watched I watched them literally fear and panic started taking over. And, um, and I've said this many times, but I took a course in the Marine Corps. It was an interesting course. It was uh, in, 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 uh, in Okinawa. And um, we were taught how to suppress and how to fight panic because panic is what kills people. And I sat there and watched these guys get up and run. And I thought, Bob, you need to stay really cool. You need to sit here and stay cool. You're in Manhattan. It's not an earthquake. Earthquakes don't explode. Uh, the building's convulsing and shaking you know, terribly. I'm also kind of in my mind's eye picturing these guys are running into the stairway and I'm watching a building, you know, swaying back and forth. And all I'm thinking of the bolts and the rivets and the things holding the stairway together. And I'm thinking, what if the stairway collapses? Wow. So I'm sitting there going, you need to be cool as a cucumber. You need to stay really cool here until you figure out what the hell's going on. Then the next thing that came through my mind is, you know, during an quote earthquake, people always say, well, get under a door jam. <laughs> and I thought, how ridiculous is that? I've got, you know, 90 floors above me. A door jam isn't going to do anything for me. Right. <laughs> so I got through all that, and I managed to get on my feet. And when I say that, because it was convulsing so badly, chairs were moving around, desks, computers were falling off desktops, drawers were opening. It was, it was, it was chaotic. Not with people, just the surroundings. And I managed to get over to the windows. And as I got over to the windows, I looked out and I looked down and there was the, uh, uh, the Hudson River. And I looked at the Hudson and I looked over at the Palisades Cliffs and I could almost see Chicago because it was such a clear, beautiful day. And then I looked up and I saw this cobalt blue sky and I saw white. And it looked like ticker tape. It looked like snowflakes against that cobalt blue sky. And I looked over to my left at about 7 o'clock, maybe 8 o'clock, and I looked at the Statue of Liberty, and then down in front of me at about 5 o'clock were the Ninth Avenue piers. And I looked at all of that, and then I put my hands deep in my pockets, and I smiled, and I said out loud, so this is where I die. Every time you say that, I get chills. I knew I was going to die. I knew for fact, I was literally, I can see it perfectly. Right now, it's, 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 it's indelibly etched in my brain. I can see looking down at the pier and watching the building swaying back and forth and thinking, this building's just going to go over. It's going to topple over, and there's nothing I can do. And so I was completely at peace. There was no panic. There was just peace. And I thought, well, okay, so this is where I die. And... uh and then the building stopped. It, it, it literally was like, you know, one of the old cartoons when I was a kid, you know, you'd see this guy pull this huge lever. And it was an audible clunk. When the building stopped shaking, it was an audible clunk. You could hear the whole thing go and make that noise. And I thought, well, this is a really good sign. And then I heard a woman just after that yell, there's been an explosion in the mechanical room on the 42nd floor. And that opens up a whole other door to any conspiracy theorists out there. And I have my own views on that, too. We'll talk about Building 7, and we'll never stop. But anyway, when that happened, I said, okay, so this is good. It's three stories above me. 
Um, the building stopped convulsing. I need to get the hell out of here. And I had just a, a little handheld notebook, not an iPad notebook, but a, a real live pen and paper notebook in my hand. Um, I was supposed to go to Toronto for a business trip that night. And my computer, my overnight bag were in the conference room. And I said, the hell with it. I'll come back and get them later. And I went over to the stairs and I opened the door to the stairway and I literally did a double take. I opened that door and I can see those people right now. Like I'm sitting here looking at you guys. I opened the door and I looked and I was like, where did all these people come from? The stairs were completely full of people. And I did a double take and I went back in and I just walked in and joined this line of people and started walking down the stairs, um, which was brutal because there were so many people that it was very, very slow. I've timed it. It took about a minute per flight. If any one of these people listening to this right now got, if we went over the stairs in this building and walked down, it takes you five or six seconds to walk down a flight of stairs. Mm -hmm. A minute's a long time. And there were so many people on the stairs. Uh, it was basically, the whole stairway was just, you know, full of people. It's just gridlock. You can only go, laws of physics, you can only go so fast. And so as we were walking down the stairs, I remember distinctly as I got close to the 30th floor and I was coming down, I was about to pivot on the uh, on the stairway on the platform i heard this commotion down below me and i looked over the handrail and i saw these two guys running up against the traffic and as they got up as i literally put my foot on the platform it started to pivot to walk down the flight of stairs they came up and the first guy had a tan suit and a white shirt on with a tie and we bumped elbows and shoulders left side and I could see on his breast pocket, he had a, a badge. It said, Chief, New York City Fire Department. And the guy directly behind him had a dark suit, white shirt on, and his said, Lieutenant, New York City Fire Department. So if you think about it, I walked down nine flights of stairs. These guys came from somewhere in Manhattan, got in that building, and climbed 30 flights of stairs by the time I went down nine flights of stairs. And they weren't kids. So they hustled up, and both of them obviously perished that day. And I just kept walking down. I was like, what the hell? You know, explosion, 39th floor. That's all, uh, 42nd floor, that's all I knew. And um, as we kept descending, the, the, the stairway was filling with smoke. And I, my last year in the Marine Corps, I was stationed in uh, Iwakuni, Japan, which is a Marine Corps air station. Um, so I smelled jet fuel um, and burning jet fuel, jet, you know, every day for a year. So you knew what that was. I know what jet fuel smells like. And anybody who's been in or around an airport knows what it smells like. Anybody in the military knows. So you get it. So what's so, going through your mind at this point when you're that's smelling a, that? Robin, that's the, the, what's going through my mind. Do you know what's going through my mind? Why the hell am I smelling jet fuel? Couldn't, couldn't put it together. So I keep walking down the stairs, and now the problem is, is it's, it's the, the, the Trade Center is becoming this enormous funnel, this enormous chimney, and it's filling up with smoke. And so one of the questions I get asked all the time is, uh, you know, there must have been panic, mayhem, you know, just complete chaos in the stairs. And, and I always kind of smile, you know, like, you know, you're an asshole, because you know what? <laughs> People want to hear that. Yes. You know, but the thing is, and, and like I said, I grew up in and around New York, and New Yorkers can truly have an attitude. 
But the flip side to any New Yorker is New Yorkers will come together quicker than anyone you've ever met in your life. Uh, they will help each other out. Um, and so you saw people handing out napkins, handkerchiefs, anything at all to cover your, ne- your nose and your mouth. And so all you saw is people walking down the stairs and they're covering their faces so they could breathe. And I'm walking down the stairs and I'm thinking, eventually what they're going to do, I'm picturing this in my mind's eye, is that they're going to start at the very base of the building. They're going to start pulling bodies out because we're all going to die of asphyxiation. We're going to die of smoke inhalation. And I'm thinking, this is not going to be good. And every time I got to a new level, I would reach over for the handle on the door. But they're locked for security purposes. And okay, one of you smart guys is like, well, how do you get from the 40th floor to 39th? They had a key. All right, let's get add that over right now. Okay? Because <laughs> people ask us stupid questions. You know it. You just, we spoke before the interview about something. Yeah, you'll hear, absolutely. You, you're going to hear Stacy. You, you, you haven't heard anything yet. Oh, no, not yet. So, so I'm trying to handle on these doors to get into one of the offices as we go down, but they're all locked. And when I got down to whatever level it was, um, just as I got to the platform and started to pivot, the door opened and these two guys walked out in front of me. And I grabbed the handle and I walked right into their office. And here I am in this beautiful office with clean, fresh air. I'm blinking, cleaning my eyes out. I'm hyperventilating, trying to get my lungs cleaned out. And I'm kind of like, okay, nobody's in here. I'm in here all alone in this beautiful office with clean, fresh air. And I said... I'll just sit here. I'll kill an hour. I got to go back upstairs and get my overnight bag anyway. Um, let the fire department do their thing. You know, 42nd floor mechanical room. That's all I'm thinking. And um, so I was, in, I was in that floor. Pick a time. Two minutes, three minutes. It's still forever. And I always say I'm not religious at all i just it's just not what i'm about but i'm highly spiritual because something took me you know the good lord came in and put his hand on my shoulder and said bob i need you to go down these stairs because i went back over to the door i opened that freaking door i held the door handle in one hand and i walked across the stairs i just leaned across stopped all the traffic and I looked down, and it wasn't that I could see because of the smoke, but I was listening, waiting for someone down below to go, get the hell back up. And I said, Bob, you're about to make a life and death decision. I got clean, fresh air in here. I got smoke in here, and I think we're going to die of smoke inhalation. Why would any, I don't want to use the word normal, <laughs> why would any normal person Go back in the stairs. We're humans. We don't intentionally put ourselves in danger if we don't have to. Well, some of us do, but um, <laughs> but I did. And, and my hand just involuntarily let go of the handle, and I went, shit. I, I, there's nowhere to go. I'm, I'm now committed to these stairs. I got clean, fresh air right there. I've now just put myself back in danger. So as we're walking down the stairs... Um, I pivoted and I I saw this man directly in front of me and he was in a wheelchair on the landing. And what had happened was he was a big guy, wheelchair. And so as people came down the stairs, it created a bottleneck where he was. And back to, you know, New Yorkers, you'd hear people behind me and up where they couldn't see on the stairs. They'd be like, what's wrong? Why are we slowing down? What's the problem down there? 
and immediately you hear people say, there's a man in a wheelchair down here, there's a little bit of a bottleneck, show respect. And then you'd hear that reverberate back up the stairs with people, and they, that's what you heard. We got down another flight of stairs or so, and I saw this woman as I pivoted and I turned directly in front of me. I can still see her. I can see her perfectly. Um, she was probably about five foot nothing, and she had to weigh 300 plus pounds. She was, you know, as wide as she was. And what people don't realize is walking downstairs, especially if you're heavy and, you know, clearly out of shape, your legs. So she'd take a step and then she's huffing and puffing. She'd take a step and she's huffing and puffing. And you're behind her with everything you got going, willing her to hurry up. But she couldn't. I mean, it's just, she couldn't do it. She physically couldn't do it. So the same thing happened. We'd hit a bottleneck and people would be like, what's wrong? Why are we slowing up? What's the problem? And immediately you heard people say, there's a woman down here. She's having a little bit of problem. There's a little bit of, and you heard that reverberate back up the stairs as well. Never once was there any panic. Was there any mayhem? Was there anybody out of line? Never, ever, ever. And that was my experience walking down uh, 30, 39, uh, 39 flights. So, um, the best of humanity came out that day. And, and again, you know, it's, it's, I, I, I can't say I blame it on New Yorkers, but, you know, it's, 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 it's New York. You know, it's, New York's had a bad rap for, you know, since I was a kid. Oh, New Yorkers this, New Yorkers that. Like I said earlier, New Yorkers come together in the worst, and it's, it's, I was proud. So as I kept going down, I'm thinking, well, you know, we're going to die in here. And uh, the, the horrible thing was, you know, you'd come down and, you know, like any movie you've ever seen coming down these, you know, commercial buildings, you know, you, you get to the landing and you see stenciled on the wall is the floor you're at. And I remember looking at like, you know, 18, 12, 10. And I'm even looking at 10 going, let's see, approximately 10 feet per story, 10 times 10, that's 100 feet. You jump out a window, yeah, you break a leg or something, but you might still live. So I'm thinking, you know, jump out a window, get the hell out of these stairs. So you actually had those thoughts in your head. Oh, absolutely. That's I the first like, time I've ever heard you I say that. I was like, that. how could I get out of here? And, and I'm, looking at the, I'm looking at the stencil on the wall wow. thinking I'm, I'm this far, you know, from the ground. You could jump from here. You know, you're going to break a leg. You, you're you're going to get hurt, though. but, you know, wow. God forbid. And then, you know, you get to eight <clears throat> and seven. And then as you're going down, you're like, you know, close doesn't count. It just doesn't count. And I'm like, you know what? I'm, I'm right there. You know, we're right there. Six, five. I'm five stories up. And anyway, I came down. <clears throat> and as we got around to the mezzanine level, I saw a guard standing down at the bottom of the stairs and he was just standing there waving people and people started flushing out there and I got down to the bottom of the stairs and I was at the uh, uh, where the buildings all connected the, uh, the, the 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 walkways and as soon as I got out I looked around and I said okay I know where I am the Amex Tower is over here and I'm walking I'm 42nd floor mechanical room I am not Jets, I had no idea what was going on, although I'm sure I was in shock. I mean, it had to be. Um, and I walked a few feet, and on my right, I saw through the glass, I looked over to my right, and probably 15, 20 feet away, there was a jet engine lying on the ground, smoldering with part of an airline, a wing. It's the kind of thing you can't register. You cannot 
you can't you can't process the information. I'm at the base of the World Trade Center, and I'm looking at a jet engine smoldering lying at the base of the World Trade Center right here in front of me. And it's, you just can't do it. So I'm walking down, and people are running past me, and I'm walking down, and I'd watch people run by me, and they'd get to the end to where the doors were leading out to the, uh, uh, the courtyard outside. And they'd grab the doors, they'd open them, and I'd watch them. They'd open the doors, and then they were looking up. And... From there, outside, there was probably, someday I'll come up with a number, but it's like roughly 30 feet. There was nothing from the building out, about 30 feet. And then there was just this mass of humanity. I mean, as far as the eye could see, left and right, all of the surrounding buildings had been evacuated. And in this enormous courtyard, all of these people were out there. And somehow, by the grace of God, um, Arthur Katz was very tall, and he had really curly hair. And um, I could have gone any one direction. I could have gone anywhere when I got out. And I happened to see Arthur's head right in front of me, deep in the crowd. But, you know, I mean, I don't know how far back. You know, pick a number, 50, 60, I don't know what the hell it was. But I saw him, and I went, Arthur! Arthur! And I'm screaming his name. And I could see him looking around like a ferret. And uh, I put a beat on him, and I worked, walked into the crowd. And the first thing he says to me is, have you seen David and Chris? And I said, no, I haven't. He said, don't move. They're not leaving without you. And I said, okay. Which is powerful, because what if I had gone one of eight million other directions? So David and Chris came back, and we did a, a, you know, a self-analysis, you know, I said, look, I'm the last one out. I know everybody in that room is out of that room. I assume they're all out of the building. I have no idea where anybody is right now, but I know that nobody was left up there. Okay, so we do that. We do the, we, well, you know. We're no okay. man left behind, right, Mr. Nobody Marine? Nobody left, exactly. Yes. So then we do what everybody else is doing. You turn around, you're staring at the freaking gash in the building, uh, I was a combat engineer in the Marine Corps. I've been banging nails since I was a kid. I own a construction business right now. So I'm looking up at that gash, and I'm like, holy shit. How are they ever going to fix that? Are they going to bring the scaffoldings from down from the top, or are they going to bring them up from down below? And I'm watching the fire in there, and I'm like, how the hell are they ever going to fix that? And at that moment, I heard someone in the crowd. I heard a woman in the crowd yell, oh, my God, someone jumped. And I looked up and I said, no, I think that's just debris falling. And at that moment, I watched a man just step off the top of the building. What was going through your head at that moment? Because we never talk about that. So what was going through your head at that moment? The first thing I'm thinking was, this is all, it's it's surreal. Um, I'm literally, as he's coming down, I'm pulling on my own shirt going, pull the, pull the shoot, pull the shoot, pull the shoot. I'm thinking this is a base jumping stunt. Hollywood, someone's doing some bizarre, crazy things, and I'm watching him. I can see him perfectly. He just... And I'm going, pull the shoot, pull the shoot. Well, it takes about 10 seconds, and you're doing, I think, about 120 miles an hour when you hit the ground. And he turned into tomato paste when he hit the ground. And uh, then a moment later, I watched this woman just step off the roof. She like it was it, like she was stepping off the curb to catch a cab, and she stepped off. She came back on her back, 
Um, her blouse was blowing up. Her hands were coming around like this. She was on her back coming down, you know, backwards. And she hit the ground and she turned into tomato paste. And at that point, I looked around to all these people. And I have a fairly loud voice. And um, I yelled as loudly as I could. I said, folks, this is not live entertainment. I will not stand here and watch people commit suicide. I'm getting the fuck out of here. David looks at me and says, you're going with me to New Jersey. And Chris and I said, no, I don't think so, David. I stopped taking orders when I got out of the Marine Corps. Um, you live in Jersey. My wife at the time lived in Boston. My sister was in Connecticut. Um, I said, I'm going uptown. I'm going to try to get to uh, uh, Grand Central and get out of here. I need to go uptown. So Arthur and I started heading uptown, which, again, saved our lives because I can't imagine how many people at the base of the buildings, who thought they were going to come down? So how many people were at the base of the buildings? And I've heard stories from people about FedEx drivers and other delivery trucks, drivers, doesn't matter what you were driving. But when the buildings started coming down, those people weren't stopping and obeying traffic laws. Mm -mm. It was self-preservation. And so that's a, a fairly ugly scene as well. So Arthur and I started heading uptown, and um, we we just started walking up uh, uh, church. And at this up, point, you didn't even know that the plane had hit the building, right? I, I saw the gash in the side, and you saw the engine, but it still wasn't registering. Yeah, I still. And now I, we we were. I mean, we were full blown shock. You know. It was, you were numb. You just, you, you couldn't put the pieces together. You know, what the hell has just happened? Um, so Arthur and I started walking uptown, and when the Building 2 came down, some of that dust and debris was blowing all over us, and we had no idea what it was. We had no idea. We didn't see the building come down, but the dust and debris blew blocks away. So we're breathing all that crap. On top of all the crap, we had to breathe on the way down the stairs, too. Um, so we walked uptown. It was a couple of bizarre stories um, about what some of the things that happened on the way up. It was it was some were actually funny under the circumstances. But we got uptown, and we his wife, Arthur's wife, worked uh, up by Forty uh, Second Street, right up by the uh, um, Empire State Building. And we got up there, and he goes, come on, let's go up to my wife's office. And I'm like, yeah, sure, I'm going to get in. I'm going to walk up, you know, into a tall building after what's going on down here near the Empire State Building. Hell that sounds no. like a great idea. <laughs> and uh, Arthur's like, come on, come on, come on. So I did. And we got in the elevator, and we got up. And when the door to the elevator opened, there was a glass door directly in front of us into her office with a completely unobstructed view of downtown Manhattan. And all we could see was this enormous dust cloud. So we walked out of the elevator. We opened up the glass door into his wife's office. And they're all looking downtown. Now, the thing is, is my, my ex-wife, my family, everybody knew that I was in New York and everybody knew I was flying that day. Nobody had any idea I was down at the World Trade Center. Wow. Um, Arthur's wife knew he was in a meeting with Lehman in the Trade Center, and she's watching the building come down. Ugh. And, of course, the other thing that happened was anytime you tried to make a phone call, it might ring once or twice, and then they all got cut off. So phones were fairly, you know, basically useless. 
at one point I did call my I managed to call my sister in Connecticut somewhere, and uh, and they someone one of the girls in the store she owns a store in Greenwich, Connecticut, and one of the girls answered the phone, and I just said real quick I said look tell Lynn I got out of the building and I'm okay, and the phone goes dead. Next thing you know, they see the building come down. So they go, well, Bob just called and said he's out of the building, but now they just watched the building and the phone went dead. So that didn't go over well wow. with anybody either. Um, so Arthur and I walk into his, his wife's office. And I, you know, I've seen guys pass out from the heat in 29 Palms. We'd stand in you know, 120 degree, you know, doing an inspection. I've seen people pass out from heat, stroke, heat exhaustion. But I've never seen anybody in television. You, know, you see somebody you know, and all of a sudden this girl just faints. I've never seen that. Arthur's wife looked back and looked over and watched him walk in the door, and she literally hit the ground like a sack of potatoes. She just dropped, and she passed out. She was so sure that her husband had just been killed there, and here he is. He walks in behind her, and she just, boom, she was out. That gives me chills hearing that. So we got her up, and we all you know, were hanging out in this office for a little while. Uh, I got on a landline, and I called uh, my, ex, my ex-wife, I've been married twice, so this is my ex-wife. I was married at the time. This is my first wife. And I spoke to her briefly, and she, she was pretty funny. She goes, you know, Bob Jenkins? She goes, there might have been many times I wished it. Oh, jeez. But she goes, I've never been so glad to hear your voice. <laughs> I mean, that's the kind of humor she's got. You know, the funny times I wish. I'm like, yeah, okay, I get that. So then my son got on the phone, and, uh, and we had a really good chat. But I said, Will... The world has changed as you know it. The world will never, ever go back to the way it was. It's, it's, it's forever, indelibly changed. So somebody in that, in that group knew someone who had an apartment up in the 90s. And we thought, well, we'll get in the car. We'll try and drive uptown, uh, up Park Avenue, go up and stay at this apartment. Because Manhattan was shut down. They completely sealed off this. You couldn't get on and you couldn't get off. So basically, Manhattan was one big gridlock island. Um, We got in the car, and we managed to go up a couple blocks. And while we were in the car on park, um, we heard 1010 Winds Radio, and they said, we've just opened the Metro North um, train station in Grand Central going to New Haven. And I said, that's me. So I jumped out of the car. I ran down Park Avenue, got to Grand Central. And when I got to Grand Central, there were guys with military uniforms on carrying, you know, uh, automatic weapons like you've never seen in New York. And I said, okay, so what track are we at? Track 42, whatever it was, you know, the metro to uh, to Connecticut, to New Haven. And I got down. I've taken it 100 times. I got down. And when the trains come into the station... I ran all the way down. I got on the farthest train on the other end because I was thinking to myself, this will be the first train to get off Manhattan. This will be the first car on, you know, whatever number of cars are, 15. I don't know what there are, but this will be the first one. So when I got on that, and I was like the only one on the train at the moment, I got in, I sat down. I was also in this seat closest to that door. I made sure that if anything happened, I could get the hell off of that train really quickly. You had your exit plan. I had an exit plan. So I'm sitting there, and I'm minding my own business. Um, I'm dehydrated. I'm in shock. And I'm kind of like, okay, just decompressing, minding my own business. And the train fills up, and the train fills up, and the train fills up. And I mean, it was just packing sardines in this damn thing. And this guy comes in and sits down to my left. 
and then these two women came in and sat down directly across from me. And, you know, they were like, they worked for, you know, a, a, a CPA or a small legal firm, you know, and they were probably office managers. And if you're from New York, you know that kind of personality. You know exactly what I'm talking about. Yes, yes. So they sit down, and the guy to my left, out of freaking nowhere, reaches in his pocket and pulls out a pack of lifesavers and goes, need a lifesaver? Oh, <laughs> and I went, are you freaking kidding me? The best of humanity. And so I said, you have no idea. So now I'm telling them the story that I just told you. And the whole train is listening because these people are all from Midtown. None of these people were downtown. So they're whole, the, the whole thing's silent. And I'm telling them everything I just told you guys. And finally, the conductor gets on and says, OK, this is the 212 local to New Haven. And he starts going through the milk stop, we call it, because it stopped at every single stop on the way. So the doors close, and the train jolts that initial bump, and the guy right here over my right shoulder, who is standing because it was so packed, all of a sudden drops to the floor. And I'm looking over, and I see his eyes back in his head, and I'm looking over at this guy, I'm like, what in the name of God else could go on today? And... It's amazing what women carry in your purses because the amount of shit that came out. <laughs> holy God. It was like it was like a CVS and Walmart, you know, or Walgreens. Um, uh, smelling salts, you know, Valium, you name it. It was there. It was right there. And they gave him it turns out he was diabetic. Ah. And uh, and they gave him some sugar and they revived him pretty quickly. But I went I then went to stand up to give him my seat. And as I started to stand and turn, the blonde directly across from me, she leaned forward, she grabbed my forearm, and she looks at me and she goes, she looks me right in the eye and she goes, honey, you've had a tough enough day as it is. And she looked at the guy on my left and she looked at him and goes, I just know someone else will give up their seat for him. And this guy over here is like, uh, yes, ma'am. Yep, yep, yes, ma'am. <laughs> so, but this guy switched. This guy came over, sat down, and then not another word was spoken. I got to Connecticut. I got off the train. I walked up Greenwich Avenue, which was just beautiful. Green, cool, breeze, just beautiful. Not a soul in sight. It was like the apocalypse. And I got up to my sister's store, and uh, she came outside and gave me a hug. I thought she was going to crush me. And um, we chatted for a second, and she said, you need anything? And I just offhandedly said, like, yeah, Valium, it'd be great. And she goes, <laughs> I might just have something for you. <laughs> so next thing you know, she had a Valium, and uh, that really took the edge off. We got back to her house later. Her boyfriend came over. Um, I don't drink anymore, but uh, I drank probably the better part of a fifth of Jack Daniels. And then I remember going to f passing out later that night. And I woke up in the middle of the night and I was curled up in the bed like a baby. And I was crying. And uh, all I had was the picture of the people jumping, just coming off the roof. And, uh, and I was like, no, this is, this is a nightmare. And I went downstairs and turned on the television, the news. And, of course, there was staring me in the face. The bizarre thing about this, and I'll end it right here, is a couple of months later, I got a phone call. And this is, you know, 20 years ago, so caller ID was still basically pretty new stuff. And the phone on my desk lights up, and it says, WC, WTCPD, World Trade Center Police Department, 
And I'm looking at it, and I'm going, there is no World Trade Center. So I pick up the phone, and uh, the officer on the other end goes, uh, uh, Robert Jenkins? Yes. My name is Sergeant so-and-so in the New York City Police Department. Um, were you in the World Trade Center on 9-11? And I said, yes, sir, I was. And he said, we found your, um, your computer bag. And I go, what? You found my computer bag? He said, yes, sir, we did. And so that took me by surprise. I'm thinking, I was on 39. There was all this. On How the hell did they do that? So we chatted for a moment. And he said, what would you like me to do with it? And I said, what do most people do? He said, well, people start crying. People hang up on me. People tell me to keep it. And people say, send it to me. And I said, oh, no, that's a piece of history right there. Send it to me. So he name, address, all that kind of stuff. And about a week later, I got a New York City forensic bag, you know, the plastic bag that's got mm -hmm. all the info yep. sealed up yep. with a piece of paper in it. And it had, it wasn't my computer bag. It was my ID card that was attached to the computer bag. It was my business card in one of those little plastic pieces that everybody puts on their luggage tags. So forensically, think about what they had to go through to dig through all of that rubble and come up with my business card. Unbelievable. Absolutely unbelievable. And... I know that many people out there have watched the documentaries. I've got well over 500 hours in research just watching. And when I look at what was done, I mean, as I said, all of that debris, it was moved to right. a place where they went through conveyor belts. There was a full staff of people yeah. that were working on conveyor belts to find those things because, yeah. again, 40% of the people were never identified. They couldn't find anything. They were pulverized. And it took, even because DNA wasn't like really big back then. So it took many more years before parts were identified. So even, you know, 10, 15 years afterwards, families were still getting identified oh, body parts. Yeah. And, yeah. I, and I know from personal experience, meeting many of these families and talking to them and, and doing the research that I have, that some of them had to not only bury what they had, but when the, you know, the coroner's office called and shipped more body parts, they would bring the bodies back up from the ground and place the other body parts in the coffin and rebury them again. Wow. I mean, I can't, even, I can't even fathom what that is like. I've had so much death no. in my life, but I can't even fathom no. seeing no. that, dealing with that. No. And, you know, Bob, when you contacted me recently and you said that you wanted to do this because we've done it before yeah. and we're going to keep doing it because yeah. we need to. Well, never forget. I mean, th that, that's the, that's, that's the end of it. You know, too many people have, have, and the media is, is trying to make it quiet. And the, 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 those that do what they do are trying to downplay this and, you know, forget it. It'll go away, you know, and sooner or later it won't. Well, bullshit, bullshit. I don't know. And we're going to bring Stacy into this because she was one of those that hold on to your seats, folks. The pile. And before we even get into this, I want to ask both of you. Uh, Stacy and I were talking about this before the show started. Does it feel like it was just yesterday? Yeah. Yes, it never goes away. No, it doesn't. It's part of everything that we see here. And having worked a lot with first responders and having talked with them, there is something that they describe 
And one of my dearest friends, Chris Fields, was part of the Oklahoma City bombing. He was that firefighter that was pictured with the young baby oh. that was carried out. Yeah. And in our conversation, I brought up that whole thing. It's not just what you hear, what you see, or what you feel, but there's also certain smells that you endure, like you were saying with the jet fuel, Bob. There are certain things, especially with ground zero. Yeah. And I'm sure, Stacy, as you being a first responder who spent so many days working on that pile, when you were called up to go work... Hold on one second. Hold on before... Because one last thing. You just brought up something really important. Okay. A year later, my sister rented a place in Tuscany for weeks, and my whole family went over, and they did it to get me out of here and get me away from it. So, you know, the whole a year later, get me out. They We had been drinking... Great Italian wine, eating food, what have you, but 9-11. And so they all went to bed, and I was watching one of the documentaries that evening. And someone just brought this up to me two days ago. They said, hey, I saw this thing on television. It was a documentary. Um, and net-net, it was there were two French brothers mm-hmm. that were doing the yes. documentary about the fire, department. fire department. Yes. Yes. And so I guess it was Engine 11. And they were down, and they came in through the lobby, and then they went up the escalator. And when they got to the top of the escalator, if you looked immediately to your right, that was the door that I came out of. Oh, wow. When I came down those stairs, that's exactly where I came out. So there they were with their cameras and their mics, and they got to the escalator. And as they were walking along that catwalk that I was telling about a moment ago where I saw the engine. Yeah. All of a sudden, I'm hearing boom, 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 boom. And I broke down crying. I was like a sobbing little baby. I have no conscious recollection this moment. I, it's not there. I, I try. I can't. I can't. No, it's because not there. Because you were focused on getting out of the building. Exactly. But when I heard that, I knew exactly what it was. It was bodies hitting the roof. And this is while you were watching the documentary. And while I was watching the documentary. Yeah. That shook me to my core to think that the audible, when I heard it again, I knew exactly what it was, but I have no conscious memory of it. None. If you asked me before that, I'd be, I don't know what you're talking about. And that, you know, like the smell of the jet fuel and that. Crazy. Yeah, like when I got back... Actually, it was my last case as a police officer when I was a detective. It was a head-on collision that killed a family, and there was fire, and the smell of burning flesh sent me right back, sent me right back. And it even, it must have affected me to the point where people around me actually saw what was happening to me, and they're like, Stacy, do you need to sit down? Are you okay? And it was, I was just like, that smell. And it just brought me right back. It's a trigger. It trigger, is. yeah. Yeah. So what was it like for you when you got that call up to go down to ground zero? What was, when you, I mean, I understand you're a first responder. You got your, your detail. You're going to go take care of it. But walking up to that site, what were the thoughts in your mind when you first saw it for yourself? Because we all saw shit on television, but right. that's nothing. You, you know you how people there. tell you, they describe like the Grand Canyon to you, and they mm. can describe it all, mm-hmm. all you want. Unless you're standing right there, you're not going to really get the whole feel of it. Right. We came up through the battery tunnel, which 
just to let you out. And as soon as you would come up, you would see the towers and you would see the World Trade Center uh, complex. I got there, my unit got there at night. So it was dark. It was around five or six o'clock. On September 11th? On September 12th. September 12th, okay. I got activated on the 11th, responded on the 12th. Typical government, you know, things got to work slow. Mm. But you were, were, you were fresh on the pile. Yeah. Yeah. yeah it, all you <laughs> saw were these emergency backlights. There was pulverized dust floating everywhere. And, and that iconic look of the cathedral lines of what was left of the towers. And I was like, just like Bob had said, movie set. This has got to be a movie set. All right, somebody's going to pull a curtain, and this is not going to be here. It, it was just, Surreal. you were looking at yeah. something, and your mind couldn't process what you were seeing. Yeah. And, and you would, when we got out of the van, and I was looking around, there was no street signs. There was, there was nothing but dust and destruction and twisted steel, metal. You can hear jackhammers going. You could hear people working, but nobody was talking. Nobody was talking. Everybody was working. It was quiet except for the machinery. And all these, these, these lights, these, these emergency lights, and all the dust flying all over the place. It, it looked like a lunar landing. Mm. I, mean, I mean, that was the best way to describe it. Mm. It was... It was just an unbelievable, an unreal, an unearthly sight. What was it like for you being in the pile and working? What did you encounter? Talk about what you were feeling. Because I know first responders are taught that they have to, you know, put it off to the side to deal with what you're dealing with. But I mean, you're human for Christ's sake. So I mean, you're down there in the middle of this shit where there's, you're trying to rescue people. I mean, are you thinking in the back of your mind at this point that there's no way that anybody survived this? My job was not to deal with the rescue mission. My job was specifically to assist with the medical examiner and the medical staff. I was a logistics coordinator with DMORT, which is Disaster Mortuary Operational Response Team, which was a, at the time, a temporary, you know, it was a, it was a federal agency that you volunteered for. Um, I had gotten involved with it when I was a rookie cop and had to deal with the tragedy of Flight 800, TWA Flight 800. It was then that I met everybody from the medical examiner and office in Suffolk County, and they told me about DMORT, and I got involved with DMORT. I was the only law enforcement officer in my particular unit. Other units across the country had law enforcement officers, but I was the only one for Suffolk County. So when we got down there, our primary job was to set up the temporary morgue. And it was just off the pile. We had to find a location that was debris-free that we could set up these tents. And uh, the, the... I don't know if it's the front side or the street side, if you will, of One World Financial has these huge, I guess it's almost like marble stairs, but it's like a, uh, 
a flat, smooth surface that wasn't impacted that much and was pretty clear. So that's what we, where we set up our tents. And I was basically assisting um, the teams getting organized because I was a logistics coordinator. I wasn't a medical professional. So my job was going to be to assist the medical staff any way that I could. And once these tents were set up and we were ready to, to receive victims, they started coming in. And uh, when the first victim came in, it was a firefighter. And the medical examiner looked at me and he goes, well, you're a temporary, they, they swore us in as temporary federal agents. And he goes, you're a police officer. This is a federal crime scene. I, I can't touch him until you identify him. So my job was to do preliminary identification of every victim that came through the temporary morgue while I was working. That was my job. And I sometimes ask myself, how the hell did I do it? But I, I have a gift of compartmentalizing things, and mm -hmm. um, that's what I did. My, 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 my duty was to those victims. My, my, my duty was to take care of them in a dignified manner. And, and that's what I did. And I'm sure you were pretty pissed off because at that point you already knew what happened. You know, the terrorist I, attack. I, ironically, I didn't get pissed off until later. I was so focused on what I was doing and I'm sure I was in a lot of, you know, in shock like everybody else mm -hmm. that I focused day in and day out just doing what I had to do. I, I, I had a routine, you know. We would go to a briefing. They would drive us down there. And we would do our job. Then we would come back. Uh, fortunately for us, usually when, when DMORD is activated, they usually sleep in tents on cots because there are no available hotels or anything. But the government made a deal with the Marriott LaGuardia because everybody fled New York. Everybody left the hotels. So the van would take us back to the hotel. Uh, the, the wonderful staff at the Marriott would provide breakfast for us. I felt terrible. We would walk in. We were covered with what we called tower dust. We mm -hmm. affectionately called it tower dust. We were covered head to toe with this stuff. And, you know, they had just cleaned the floors. And I'd walk in and, sorry, I'm sorry. And they're like, don't worry about it. And, you know, I look like pig pen dropping <laughs> dust all over the place. And they'd have breakfast for us and we would, we would eat and then we would go to our, our assigned rooms and I would, I think I stayed in the shower for an hour, hour and a half. I, I just scrubbed myself raw. I just knew the shit was bad. Wow. And, and I just tried to get it out of my nose. I tried to get it out of my hair. I, I took off my uniform very carefully. I sprayed it down because I didn't want that stuff flying around the hotel room. And, and that's what I did. How long were you there? For 23 days. The police department called me back. The, the government wanted me to stay until December, but the police department was like, no, we, we, we need you back. And, and that was also hard. I mean, I was never in the military like you were, Bob, but I kind of almost know what it feels like when you, when you come back from a deployment because now right. I'm, I'm more isolated. I, I lived alone 
and now I was okay. You're leaving. You're going to go back to normal life, right? You know, and 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 you can't. No, you you can't. You no. do the best you can, no. but you know, there's not a switch. That yeah. Yeah, and, and, and I didn't talk about it. When I got back, I didn't talk about it. There was only one or two people in the department that knew what I did. So when I finally did talk about it, they're like, you were never there. I don't remember hearing you were there. You weren't there with the police department. All you have to do is listen to you talk because you can hear it come out in your emotions. Yeah. That's like anybody else. You'll know a person who has gone through something if it's relatable because you'll see it and you'll hear it. And, you know, I, if it's too traumatic for you to talk about this, you just let me know because I, I get real here. And I, I want people to understand, you were down there for 23 days. Talk about what you saw. I mean, body parts. Yeah, it, it, it all was, that shit. It was when we were in the tent, in the, in the temporary morgue, and they brought in... They would bring in, an, and I describe this in my, in my book that I just published. There were, there were full victims that were brought in at first. Those were the easier ones to identify. And this one particular one, this was actually kind of, I don't want to say a funny story, but it's, I remember just being left alone with this, this firefighter on, he was on, on the metal table and his arm fell off the table, and his, 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 his Scott pack, which was still on his back, was about an inch thick. And if you know how big Scott packs are, I can only imagine the impact that, that he took. It was amazing that his body was still, skin was still over his bones. Wow. And he had all his bunker gear on, and I just oh. walked. The, the medical examiner had walked out. They were, they, they were doing some paperwork or doing something. And I just walked over to the body. I, I, I put his arm back on the table, and I was straightening out his uniform. And at some point while I was doing this, the, the firefighters that had brought him in had come back into the room, and I didn't notice. And, and they just sat in silence watching me mm-hmm. fix, fixing his turnout mm-hmm. gear and straightening his uniform and putting his arm on and and apparently it affected one of the firemen to the point where he says because after we had them the the fire department would be taken via ambulance to the medical examiner so the fireman comes over to me and he's like uh there's only a few of us here would you like to help us drape the american flag over his body and and that's usually held for firefighters I mean, they knew, I mean, I was in a military style uniform, so they didn't know I was a police officer. They didn't know who I was, you know, other than what they saw me do to their fellow firefighter. And I was like, sure, I'd be be honored. Mm. And and I was actually given a flag that had flown over Ground Zero by the fire department, which I, I still have in a in a flag box in my house. Good for you. I actually have like a little, it's almost like a little museum in my house right now. I have mm-hmm. my original boots. I have my, my, my bulky mask. Doctors made fun of me. I'd wear this big 3M HEPA filter, change the filters every day mask. And I still got sick. And, and, but the doctors would always make fun. And I'll never forget when one doctor said to me, he says, 
Stacy, you're going to be the only one alive in 20 years. And, and, and sad to say, he's, he's pretty much right. There's More only- people have died post 9-11 of related yes. causes than died that day right. 20 years later. And on average, one 9-11 worker, this includes firefighters, police officers, utility workers, iron workers, one 9-11 worker or first responder dies every three days of a 9-11 related illness or cancer. And nowhere in the media, never, nowhere does anybody address this. No. No, and it took a talk show host slash actor slash comedian to go to Congress mm-hmm. and cause John an up- Stewart. Yes. Right. It With took, the Feel Good Foundation. Yes. It took someone like that who's very prominent in the world as a recognizable figure to stand up and fight for all of you guys because you were ignored. And that's, to me, it's just bullshit because 9-12-2001 was the best that humanity had ever seen. We were Americans. Everybody was an American. Exactly. Exactly. Everybody. Even if you didn't live in this country, you were visiting this country. Everybody was an American. There was a flag on every house, and nobody was offended by the American flag. Right. How does the American flag offend you? I, I just can't comprehend that. And, 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 and being somebody who was a first responder, now retired, who worked at Ground Zero, that offends me, that people are offended by the mm-hmm. flag of our country. Mm-hmm. Leave. Get the hell out of here. Yeah. You don't like it? Leave. There's the door. This is still a free nation. Yeah. Yep. And you both developed health issues due to your experience down at Ground Zero. Yes. Yes. I've had three types of cancer since. It just leaves me speechless. It just breaks my heart because I've seen the best of people and I've seen the worst. Yeah. But we're forgetting how much people gave and are still giving. And you guys are a true testament for what happened and what you lived through. And the thing I always go back to, Bob, when I hear you tell that story, I bet you now you're thankful that you didn't stay in that fresh air room. You're grateful. I wouldn't be sitting here. No, you wouldn't. I, 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 would, I would be pulverized. There's no way that I would be here today. Nobody survived. So this conversation wouldn't be happening. You know, and I've often thought about this, that dust. When you really think about it, when a person gets cremated, we spread their ashes. So how do we really know that the dust that ended up on you guys and a lot of other people, how do we know that that's not the basically cremated remains of some of those victims in the towers? Easily could be. There were fires that were plenty hot. The fires that were there were actually hotter than cremation. So a lot of what was also brought into us later on, once they kept uncovering things, small fires were burning for about 99 days after 9-11. Once they were able to unearth and move all of that uh, cement and steel, they would move it, a fire would flare up. When bodies came into us, you had to be very careful not to touch, touch anything metal, no belt buckles, because you'd burn yourself. And, and, and at times, they'd come in with perfect, clean bones, like 
something you would see in a in a in a, in a medical lab or that they were teaching students with like these were pure white bones so you know these people were cremated yeah yeah alive yeah and that's why i titled my book the dust never settles because it's 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 it's, it's a metaphor for the actual dust that was there and all the emotions afterwards and everything we're still dealing with so you know, stace i got a question how did you I, I i've contemplated writing a book but you did it well i wanted to do it 10 years ago but every time i put pen to paper i would have issues yeah i would have nightmares i would have panic attacks you're reliving the trauma yeah right and and so I actually had to get some help. I had handwritten pages, um, and I needed somebody to help me put this together. I wanted it to be about, because people had been saying, oh, you should write a book, you should write a book. You know, your life is so interesting, write a book. And, and so I, I actually employed somebody who's an editor, who's an author himself, who's a webmaster. I actually had a pay him to help me put this all together because I mean I, I knew what the title was going to be you know I, I obviously had all the material but I didn't know how to put it together into a cohesive finished product okay so for those listening you're chomping at the bit stacygoodmanbook.com s-t-a-c-e-y goodman g-o-o-d m-a-n book hope you know how to spell that com <laughs> Stacy Goodman book now is this available on Amazon too it is but I would prefer that you purchase it from the website because if you purchase it from the website you're going to get a signed copy cool and Amazon hasn't paid me yet it's always hard to get royalties from books speaking for myself I know that it's a tough thing so if you if you um, purchase the book through my website at least I can try to recover some of the funds that I spent on yeah. creating the book. I'm yeah. not making any money on this book. I'm just trying to recoup funds because it's, I believe this is important. I believe this, this is like a history book. And, and I think you should write one, Bob. I, I, mm-hmm, I agree. I, I think I have enough material. I think you do. I think so. The thing, yeah. the thing about it is we always wonder what our legacy is going to be. And since our, you know, things now have changed so dramatically in the United States yes. with history being rewritten, this is one thing that... And erased. Yes. yes. And this is one thing that we should never forget. I know that's the word. And I've had a friend recently, I was You're telling... You're a domestic terrorist for saying that. I don't yeah, give a yeah. shit. You know, I, yeah. I had a friend tell me recently, he goes, I'm so tired of seeing your posts all the time that say never forget. So I said, well, unfollow me. Yeah, I'm, right. I'm sorry, you know, really? I now have personal friends, Bob, and now Stacy and Larry that yeah. was with us last time. Yeah. I understand things. I took my trip to New York and I met people. I sat before a fireman at 10 house, which is directly across from the tower. Yep. And the experiences that I had not being at the tower, not working at the tower, not being in there. Mm or not being on a plane that day, watching it, being the witness to the murders that happened, and then meeting somebody who was there. And 
seeing the look of relief on their face when you're able to give them something, just any sort of peace. I'm changed forever because of 9-11. Yeah, we Uh, all are. I think we all are, yes. But there's so many people that have forgotten. And like I mentioned. Too many people, yeah. And the young kids, 20-year-olds, 25-year-olds, they don't know. I've offered to talk at schools and... They're just not interested. They're not interested in teaching this. No. And they need to. We, no. need, we need to remind everybody, and it's not just the event itself. You know, I, there's a very poignant statement that this lady I had met, she said, it's not about how I died. It's about how I lived. Bingo. And we keep forgetting yeah. to remind people about all that was lost, how many families were ripped apart from this, how many children were without parents, yeah. how many you know how many parents lost their children yep. you know the youngest victim two years old you know we don't talk about those things because it's bad it happened it's done get over it you guys are not over it you're never gonna you get through it you get past it you move on because you have but you to will never be over it no. no you can't and that is why we do this show yeah. because we have to be real and I'm just sick and tired of people telling me, shut up. No. Yeah, people tell me that, too. People are trying to silence me all the time. Right. And that you were all talking to me before the show that people are mad at you for writing this book. Yes, people are. And you know what? That is your story. It belongs to you. You were there. It's cathartic. There have been many books written on 9-11. I'm guilty of writing something in my book based on my experiences with 9-11 I didn't do it to capitalize on 9-11. Right. There, there were so many people that wrote books right after it happened. You just wrote your book. I did mine last year. Yeah. So this isn't about capitalizing on an event that happened. This is about the catharsis. This is about the healing. This is about the legacy of leaving something behind because we never know when our time is up. Right. They actually, um, the World Trade Center Health Program and LHI, which are the uh, doctors, and they actually, at the very beginning, I think in 2002 or 2003, they asked for volunteers to be videotaped for interviews, and and I volunteered, and they they did a interview with me, and they said, and I asked them, why are you doing this, and they told me, they said. Because we don't want this to be like the Holocaust where people forget it and then deny it. Right. And, and these, these <clears throat> interviews with all of these people are now categorized into, or I should say cataloged, into the Library of Congress, which I would like to eventually go back to New York and, and, and make sure that they end up in the museum mm. because I think that is important. I went to a museum in, in Prague and they interviewed people who were living under communism so that it would never happen again there. And, they were, and, I, and it was a machine. You go right in and you could push on any name and hear their interview. Mm-hmm. And I think that's what we need to have in the museum, the, the, the 9-11 museum. I think that should be there. And, and all those interviews that were done should be in there for people to see. Great idea. Have you been back to Ground Zero, Stacy? I used to go every year for the first couple of years. I would, I, I, I never worked 
on 9-11 after that. I would always take the day as a personal day, and I would go into Manhattan um, for the first few years. I had to stop going when people, would, people came out and started protesting. I, I, I was afraid I was going to <laughs> might hurt somebody, yeah, yeah. so I stopped going. Um, but I did go back when the museum became available and they allowed us to go and they, they treated us very well when I went there. You know, I told them I was a first responder and I worked and I had to prove that I had worked down there and I have all my ID cards and everything. So I, I showed them that and that was good enough to get me in. And, uh, it was very hard to see some of the things in the museum, but it was, it was very well done. The museum itself was, but being so close and personal, and you know, they built a part of the museum around one of the only remaining staircases. Wow. So they have that in a glass enclosure. Yeah, the it one was that the was left standing. Yeah, yeah, it was the underground one. That's why it is, the museum was built around that. So I, I thought that was, that was fascinating how they did that. And, um, I would actually like to try to see if I can get my book over there. You know? Yeah. I'm not done yet. I'd like to speak to somebody from Southwest Airlines. You know how they have those um, honor flights? Yeah. They should have an honor flight for people who worked at Ground Zero that now live out here that could, that could fly back to New York and um, you know, spend a couple of days in the city and be with each other so we right. can comfort each other. Right. You know, because it's very, I had to go back there last month, and I was by myself in Manhattan. I had to go back, as I, as I mentioned to you, Robin, still fighting for my benefits that I'm entitled to. Which is ridiculous. Yeah. <laughs> and um, I, my blood pressure here is 127 over 88. My blood pressure in Manhattan was 158 over 100. I was, I was in turmoil there because I was by myself. I really should have had a buddy with me. I yeah. really should not. Yeah. But I had no choice. I had to go to see this doctor. I had to go. First, they wanted me to go in September. And I said, absolutely not. I had to get my attorney and tell him I need an August date. I cannot. Can't, I mean, heartless bastards. That's what I thought. I'm like, Here, you, you, you know I've worked at Ground Zero. You want me to come back in September? Are you out of your mind? Like, have a little compassion. No. Yeah, so, well, at least I got my August date. That was, yeah. This, re this reminds me so much of how veterans are treated when they come back from war. I mean, huh? what, what you guys went through is war. That was, it, I know they call it the war on terror, but literally what, yeah. what you guys saw and went through, that's, that to me is what war is. And it's like a lack of respect for people who come back from that. And I just can't even fathom why. No. You know? That, I mean, uh, President Trump signed the, the victim's compensation bill giving billions that was supposed to be distributed amongst the, the 70 or 77,000 still remaining 9-11 workers, you know, based on their ailments. And like I said, I got, I got denied. First time around, okay, we'll give you a little. Second time around, new ailments come up. The idea of that second signing of that package was for new and additional ailments that were 
that was certified. If you got certified right. and I got certified by right. their doctors yep. and, and then you deny me, it's like, how can you do that? Your doctors have all the documentation. Yeah. It's, yeah. it's, it's just, it's, it's very disheartening. And, 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 and you had it, one of the worst jobs. It, it was, it was a very difficult job, but the irony is when I was younger, I wanted to be a medical examiner. The universe has a good sense of humor, I guess. <laughs> I, Be careful what you wish for. Yeah, exactly. Because, it, you know, looking back on it and thinking like, holy shit, how did I get through that? Yeah. How, how the fuck yeah. did I get through yeah. that? Really? Yeah. How am I, how am I even functional? Yeah. It's amazing. Yeah. It, it really, and, and if I think about it too long, I might, I, might, I mean, it's probably why I'm still single, but, uh, you know, it, it it's amazing how I, and I'm, I function very well. Yeah. I guess I'm a good at compartmentalizing things. Yeah. I don't know. But I mean, there are nights, like you said, I just lay in bed, curl up and start crying. Yeah. It never leaves you. No, it never, no, it can't. It, it's, no. It, 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 it defines your life to a certain degree. And we always talk about yeah. not allowing the past to define our future, but how can you not to some degree when you live through something like this? Yeah. It becomes a part of your tapestry of who you actually are, like your childhood. This is not just an experience or something you went through. This is now ingrained into you. I agree. Yep. And I mean, yep. I, I have to use a CPAP machine every night. Every time I hit that button, I'm reminded this is what I sacrificed. Yeah. But are you proud of your service and what you did? Yes, and I would do it all over again. Yeah. There's the answer. Yeah. So screw what anybody else thinks. You did what you had to do, and I can't even imagine what that would be like. I've had friends commit suicide, and I've been the one to find the body. I understand that, but... One body after another, pieces, parts. I can't even fathom what that would be like. 23 days. I just can't even imagine what you've had to live with seeing that. So I am very proud to have you both here today because this is what exemplifies the beauty of being American is those who sacrifice, those who give of themselves freely, and those who do things, like in Bob's case, remaining calm, finding his way out, and taking control and getting to where he needed to be, instead of overreacting and reacting like a human being normally would. You did right. what you had to do. Yeah. And every time I hear your story, it just gives me chills. And, you know, I praise the day that I met you, Bob, because you, you really sent it home for me about 9-11. Yeah. And then meeting you, Stacy, you guys are heroes in my mind, and no one can take that away from you. Thank you. So two things before we leave. I want people to go, I hate to use the word Google, but use Google or DuckDuckGo and just look up WTC7 and do your research because too many people that I talk about don't even know that World Trade Center collapsed on 9-11 they'll go what what are you talking about just two towers came down i go no mm -hmm. there are actually three mm -hmm. wtc7 go look it up 
you know, whatever search engine you use, it's real simple. WTC7, don't stop until you've done some research. And back to Stacy, Stacy Goodman, book.com. Buy her book and keep an eye out for mine because I've now got a fire lit and I got to write. I'm going to help you, book. Bob. I know. I got to write a book. I got <laughs> You got two authors right here that can yeah, exactly. help you out as best exactly. as we can. Exactly. <laughs> exactly right. Yeah. <sighs> I just got to find the time. You got to read my book first. I Bob. need to read your book. Yeah. No. I'm, you have a copy? Got copies right here. I need a signed autograph. Okay. Yeah. Awesome. Wow. I'm getting a copy. That's awesome. Awesome. Guys, thank you so much for being here with me today. Thank you yeah. for having me, Robin. Yeah. And for uh, and all you listeners, password. Don't forget. And and if you do see a police officer, thank them for their service because they oh. really appreciate it and they need it more than ever now. Yeah, you got that right. Yeah. You got that right. Our first responders yeah. are uh, going through a lot right now, and uh, you know, especially even with the ones that were. That we're there working 9-11 yep. and everything that goes on in our world today. So nope. we love our first responders. We love being American. We love our country. And uh, please, everybody, don't forget, never forget. Never. Never. Because this is the history of what has happened. No. And still, people are going to be affected by it. And don't tell someone to get over it because it, it, you, we can't. We just can't. And if we do, we're not human. So, as always, guys, thanks for listening. Take care, and we'll see you next time. Thanks for listening to Get Real with Robin. Join Robin Cote and her co-hosts, known as The Collective, each week as they delve into subject matters most are afraid to talk about, but really need to hear. Join us next week here on Star Worldwide Networks as we continue to get real. Get real.